0: The one hundred Years War, the De period, the French Campaign of thirteen seventy one. Now fortunately for the English, the French government was also in financial difficulty in thirteen seventy one. The effort involved in mounting two major campaigns midwinter had drained the French Treasury. In february thirteen seventy one, Charles V's Council suspended payment of civil service salaries. During the summer, unexpected difficulties were encountered in collecting the aids. The nature of these difficulties is not disclosed by the rather fragmentary sources, but what is clear is that the majority inquiry into the falling of the yields was underway in most of the provinces of Languedoc. Charles V was obliged to anticipate flow of tax revenue by borrowing 100,000 francs from a syndicate of Italian bankers at Avignon. Even this did not enable him to pay the wages of his troops regularly. The wages of the army on the March of Calais were often in in arrears. Some of his captains were still waiting to be paid for their service for the campaign of 1369. As a result, the French king was not in a position to carry out any of the menacing operations with which William of Wycombe had tried to frighten his audience in the Painted Chamber in February. After the rapid movements of the past two years, a stagnant calm, born of exhaustion and financial paralysis, fell on the main theaters of war. The summer campaigning season was largely taken up with painstaking and unproductive sieges of a handful of fortresses in western France where English garrisons and the remnants of the Great Company of 1367-68 had continued to hold out in the midst of French territory. The castle of thierry arcor on the River Orne, southwest of Caen, had been occupied since the summer of 1370 by two retainers of Charles of Navarre, the cousins Jean-Lamoy and Eustace Riffelart de Poligny. Poligny called himself an officer of the King of England, which he was certainly not, at least in any formal sense. The garrison was probably an offshoot of the garrison of Saint-Savar, was a mix of brabble from England and Normandy, with some Navarrese routiers thrown in for good measure. And although not large, it had devastated much of Lower Normandy since the summer of the previous year. One of Charles of Navarre's first public acts as the vassal of the King of France was negotiate its surrender on April twelfth, thirteen 1371. The terms made it clear that although the place had been under loose siege for several months, it was by no means at the end of its resistance. The English in the garrison would not contemplate surrender without a safe conduct to Saint-Sivar or Boucherel. The payments of the arrears of their patis and their ransoms also needed to be done. This liability amounted to 14,000 francs. Ultimately, had to be met by the long-suffering taxpayers of the five dioceses of Lower Normandy. In about April 1371, de Guisclin turned his attention to the twin castle of Conches and Bretel on the edge of the Paz de Oches. These places nominally belonged to Charles of Navarre, but had been granted to him by Edward III's famous Gascon captain, Jean de Gréry, Cap de Bush. During the civil wars of the 1360s, they were still commanded by his captains. When summoned to surrender at the beginning of April 1371, they replied they would take no orders but Cap de Bush's. They were allowed a six-week truce to obtain the Cap's instructions. The French entertained some hope that Cap de Bush would surrender the castles. He had been captured, commanding Charles of Navarre's army at the Battle of Cocherel in 1364, and released without ransom by Charles V. There was a school of thought at the French court which considered that this prevented him from fighting directly against the king. Cap de Bush did not agree. He declined to surrender either fortress. There was some inconclusive skirmishing around the walls of both places in the second half of May. At the beginning of June, the constable set about organizing a formal siege of Conches, digging trenches around its walls, strengthening at critical points by stone bastides, and fortifying churches and other buildings around the perimeter. A looser siege was maintained around the castle of Botrel. The sieges were interrupted by frequent diversions on the other fronts, and the two fortresses held out until early the following year, in 1372. The garrison of Conches eventually surrendered at the beginning of February of 1372 after the French brought up heavy reinforcements and gunpowder artillery. They were granted honorable terms and were allowed to leave in peace. The garrison of Brotel had an even better deal. They were allowed to remain in occupation on the half of Cap de Bush provided they undertook no means of making war on the king of France or his subjects. It was a small reward for nearly a year of effort. Charles V had adroitly countered the schemes of the King of Navarre. The tragedy of his reign was that he was never able to do the same with John de Montfort. The French king lived in perennial fear that John would align himself with his old champions and let the English armies in the France across the marsh of the Brittany Duchy. The king's fears were wide of the mark, in fact the duke's great object was to keep out the war and avoid antagonizing either side. He had no desire to become an English client again unless he had to. Charles V never really understood this or realized how difficult of a position John was in. He was shocked by the duke's decision to allow the army of the earls of Cambridge and Pembroke to land at Saint-Malo and cross Brittany on their way to Aquitaine in the spring of 1369. was infuriated by john's brief dalliance with the king of navarre these acts which branded john de montfort at the court of france as an enemy for the rest of his reign the result was to bring about the very thing that charles most feared it was a serious misjudgment a large part of the explanation for it lay in the presence of influential bretons at charles V's court and in his army men who had never really accepted john de montfort's legitimacy as the duke the cause of bois was dead but it would be many years more before its partisans were ready to forget. Jeanne de Princevay, who lived in Paris but retained the enormous possessions of her family in northern Brittany. She was still in power in the duchy and focus of loyalty among former supporters of her husband. Her daughter was married to Louis of Anjou, whose appanage bordered on Brittany to the southeast and who stirred up difficulties for Jean de Montfort whenever he could. It was Louis and his mother-in-law, and the Franciscans of Guincolp, in whose church the dead hero was buried, who were the main drivers behind the attempt to promote the canonization of Charles of Bois in the decade after his death. The sanctity of politicians and war leaders was a delicate matter in the age in which people believed that God was the arbiter of men's political fortunes. As the myths surrounding Joan of Arc were to demonstrate in the following century, Jean de Montfort regarded the cult of his old enemy, with its attendant eulogies and miracle stories, as a direct challenge to his authority. So we'll be looking at what happens with John de Montfort in the next segment. Now the sources for this, Chronicles by Foissart, The Hundred Years' War by Perrois, The Hundred Years' War by Nylans, and Volume 3 of The Hundred Years' War, The House Divided by Sumption. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.